<laughs> but uh, I hope it doesn't describe. But um, Joshua chapter 24 is where we are. Joshua 24 is a review of history. And as it tells this review of history, it is an appeal to serve the Lord. This is a covenant renewal ceremony. Notice in verse 25, uh, verse 25 of Joshua 24, Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and ordinance in Shechem. So this is a covenant renewal a ceremony. Uh, what we want to do today is to cover through at least verses 13, maybe through verse 15, uh, then take the rest, Lord willing, on Wednesday night. As I read verses 1 through 13 to begin with, I want to ask you, who is the key character of this? Uh, what is, who is the main subject of action? But Joshua 24, 1 through 13. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and their heads and their judges and their officers and they presented them before God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterward I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, He put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and brought the sea upon you, and covered them. And your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt. You lived in the wilderness for a long time. Then I brought you out into the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan and they fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. I'm in verse 9. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse him. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam, so he had to bless you, and I delivered you into his hand. You crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you. And the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Canaanite, and the Hivite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite and the Jebusite. I said Hivite twice, I think. Hittite and Hivite. Okay. Thus I gave them into your hand. Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites before you, but not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land in which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and you have lived in them, and you are eating of vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. Now, who would you say 
is being emphasized in that. God, the Lord. Now, this is what I counted, and this could be wrong, okay? But it will give you an idea of the emphasis, okay? The word Lord is used 21 times in Joshua 24. The word Lord is used 21 times. The pronoun He is used 8 times. Again, that I counted. The term I is used of God 17 times, and that's just in verses 2 through 13. It is hard to put more emphasis on the Lord than that in that amount of verses. So you have there about, you know, 45, if I've counted them right, references to God, and I only trace this through the first, through verses 2 through 13. So there is a heavy emphasis on the Lord, on what He's doing, and what the Lord has done is an appeal to Israel to serve Him and serve Him only. If it be disagreeable to you to serve the Lord, you choose who you will serve, but it's for me and my house will serve the Lord. Now, Lord willing, on Tuesday night, we're going to look at Psalm 78. It will, we'll have probably have to divide it up into two parts. Psalm 78 is like Psalm 105, Psalm 106, and Nehemiah 9. They tell the story of the history of Israel and they emphasize two different things. They emphasize God's goodness to Israel and they emphasize Israel's sin and rebellion against God. That is what's going to be emphasized in Psalm 78, Psalm 105, Psalm 106, Nehemiah 9. God's goodness contrasted with Israel's sin. God's goodness shines that much brighter when we understand that He is showing His goodness to a people who are sinful and rebellious. And Israel's sin and rebellion looks darker against the background of God's goodness and God's mercy. Now, as a whole, Joshua 24 at least in these verses we read, is not focused as much on Israel's sin. It is more focused on God's goodness. It's different than those Psalms in that respect, though that's not completely missing. What we want to do today, we want to particularly stress what the text does say about the goodness of God. But we also want to remember we ought to remember that often the periods he is describing are periods of great sin, great wickedness, and great rebellion against God. And uh, we'll see how we'll do this in just a second. But as he begins, the text begins in verse 1, he gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, same place they made a covenant in Joshua 8, Shechem, one of the cities 
of refuge, according to Joshua 20 and verse 7. But he gathered the people to Shechem. He mentions the same groups he mentioned in 23 verse 2. He mentions the elders. He mentions the head. He mentions the judges. He mentions the officers. He calls them. They presented them before the Lord. And Joshua begins and he says, Thus says the Lord. Actually, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. But that formula, thus says the Lord, where do you expect to be in the Bible when you read those words? What was that? In the prophets. The prophets. The prophets use that as an introduction repeatedly. This is what the Lord says, or thus says the Lord. I think one thing this introduction shows us is that Joshua is to some degree fulfilling the role of a prophet. You remember that in Joshua 1 verse 17 that the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh said, Just as we obeyed Moses, we will obey you. He is a prophet who speaks the word of the Lord. Joshua 1 verse 17. And here in Joshua 24 2, he begins his message, his message of Israel's history with the same formula. Thus says the Lord. He is speaking for God. He is speaking the words of God to the people of God here. Now, from ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river. He mentions Terah, Abram, and Nahor. And he says they served other gods. Now, we don't read that note specifically anywhere else. It may be implied in some passages. There is a passage in Genesis 31 verse 53 where Laban and Jacob are parting from each other. They set up a monument and they state, may the Lord watch between me and you when we're absent from one another and you won't go beyond this pillar to do me harm and I won't go beyond this pillar, pillar to do you harm. And they swore by the God of Abraham. And the New American Standard says the God of Terah and Nahor. Uh, I believe it says Terah and Nahor. It says, it says Nahor. But um, in that passage, it could be translated God's. Uh, so it could be translated God, if you're speaking of true God. It could be translated the gods, if you're speaking of other gods. But this is a passage that tells us that specifically. That when God's call of Abraham is a picture of his goodness. It's a picture of his mercy. But the fact that Israel, that Terah and Abram and Nahor, it says they in the text, they served other gods, is a reminder that from step one of God calling His people to fellowship with Him, it is a statement of His mercy and His grace. The people are worshiping other gods and God calls them to exclusive devotion to Him. It was an act of mercy on God's part. I called them. I took your fathers from beyond the river, led him through all the land of Canaan, multiplied his descendants. 
Now, so God called Abraham. God not only called him, he multiplied Abraham. He multiplied his descendants. Now that comes in spite of the fact that Sarah is barren. And you find cases like Genesis 16 where Abraham devises that he's going to take Hagar. Really Sarah devised that Abraham would take Hagar and have children by her. And so in this passage, again, we're reminded, even though that stated, he multiplied all God's done for him, this is the part that is emphasized in this particular passage. But we are reminded, knowing the back story, that it is a story of God's goodness and God's mercy to Israel in spite of the fact that they sinned. And then he begins dealing with Isaac in verse 4, in 24.4. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. So Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. Well, there's really not much to say negative about that because we know everything was just really perfect in that day. <laughs> in Genesis 27, as Jacob dresses up as the older brother and claims his brother's blessing from his blind father as Esau threatens to kill Jacob. And yet, here we're reminded of all God's goodness to their forefathers. To Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. And not only that, but he said, I gave to Esau Mount Seir. This is the area that the Edomites dwelt in. All through the Bible, Edom is a picture of rebellion to God. And yet, in spite of this, the book of Obadiah is one book that demonstrates that. But in spite of that, God was merciful to Edom. God is the one who gave them their territory in the beginning. God was so gracious and so compassionate. Um, that's the first four verses. What any thoughts that you have on that or questions? David? Uh. This kind of puts <coughs> Abraham's obedience in some context, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. you know, yes, he and his father served other gods, but when God told him, leave this area, leave this land, <laughs> he obeyed. Yes. So it's like he made a choice. Yeah, he did make a choice. Follow what Jehovah told him to do. Yes. What David said is right. It's, it's right. I would say too though that and, and let me just let you look at this. You all look at this and Lord willing Wednesday night we can come back to this. Compare Genesis 11 27-32 where God calls Abraham with Acts 7, verses 2 through 4. Genesis 11, 
verses 27 through 32, with Acts 7, verses 2 through 4. Abraham was obedient, but I don't want to say everything. But does he do everything right from moment one? Uh, look at those passages and we can talk more about that. I'm not minimizing what David's saying because ultimately Hebrews 11 does show. He did it. Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 10. He, he, he left not knowing where he was going. And I do think, as David says, this background puts us in a greater appreciation for him. Because this was a decisive call in his life. It also may have been part of the reason that God says, leave your country and leave your kin and leave your father's house. But then the Bible says, I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt by what I did in your midst and afterward I brought you out. Now right now, there's more I can say about that. But right now, let's just focus on I, I sent Moses and Aaron and they plagued Egypt. Because we'll come back to that hopefully before we finish today. In verse 6, I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea. And Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen. But when they cried out, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea on them and covered them and your own covered them, and your own eyes saw what I did, and you lived in the wilderness of Egypt. So, the Bible talks about in verses six and seven. I guess I should be giving verses for this. Um, God talks about delivering them from Egypt. Delivering them from Egypt. Remember what Exodus 14 says. Exodus 14, 10 through 12. First person there, if you can read that. Exodus 14, 10 through 12. And what we're going to see is Israel's response to the Egyptians and the sea. Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Okay. Now, this text just states the people cried to the Lord, Joshua 24-7. And they did in Exodus 14-10 that David read just a moment ago. But then, after they cried out to the Lord, they quickly start blaming Moses for their predicament. We told you while we were in the land, leave us alone. Why have you brought us out to die in the wilderness? To the point, any great act of God's salvation and God's mercy seems to be met by stubbornness and rebellion on the part of His people. I know I had a person 
talked to me a few years ago, uh, a fellow teacher. She was in the education department, and she made the statement. She said, I know some of these students uh, get frustrated with us at times because we demand this and ask this. And she said, if they only knew how much we were doing to pull them across the finish line, to somehow get them to finish their task, he said, if they could really appreciate that, I think they would see this differently. God is pulling us across the finish line, and we're a lot of times not wanting to go. We're a lot of times not wanting to go. We're, we're, we're pushing away at every given moment. And then, after he says this, he delivered them from Egypt, 24 verse 7 says, they lived in the wilderness. For a long time, and we know that long time was 40 years. And Numbers 14, verse 22 says, In the wilderness they tested me, they tempted me, time after time after time. I think he actually says 10 times in that passage in Numbers 14, in verse 22. Verse, verse 8. I brought you into the land of the Amorites who live beyond the Jordan. They fought with you. And that, that phrase, they fought with you, is going to be found in verse 8, verse 9, verse 11. But they fought with you. I gave them into your hand and you took possession of the land when I destroyed them before you. Now, who are those two kings who lived over here in the area eventually... Um, dwelt in by Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. Who are the two kings who dwelt here? Sihon and Og. Sihon and Og. Sihon and Og. Now, the, the victories over Sihon and Og are recorded in Numbers 21 and Numbers 22. God gave Sihon and Og into their hand, a fact that was mentioned both by Rahab in Joshua 2 and the Gibeonites in Joshua 9. Now, Sihon and Og, um, there really is nothing sinful Israel does right there in those accounts uh, about Sihon and Og. There's nothing expressly sinful mentioned. But right, remember, right before that, this is before those events, Israel is complaining about the manna and God sent serpents among the people and they bite the people and some of the people die. It's Numbers 21. Now that's right before uh, they encounter Sihon and Og in, in, in a couple of accounts later. And so what I'm stating is again, even though they're not sinful within that account, Israel... Israel is constantly pushing God away. In verse, in verse 9, Then Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse him. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam. So he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. One of the things that just amazes me is how often this thing, this event about Balaam and Balak is referred to in the Old Testament. And, you know, to us, I understand 
Well, you might, I, I'm, I'm saying we understand, but maybe I understand how we can look back on this and we can say, well, what's the big deal that here this guy is standing on the mountainside cursing these people? They may not even know of all that he is saying, and yet God turns this curse into a blessing. And one person suggested, one writer was suggesting that it may have been that these prophets of other nations who said things denouncing Israel were a great cause of fear to Israel and that God is showing that he can even turn the, the curses that people utter against them into blessings. But you read about... And, and I apologize, I should have started over further. So we're going to have to do our two lists, God's goodness and God and Israel. We'll just put it like that. Okay, because here we are in 24, 9 and 10 with Balaam. And you remember how Balaam went up to try to curse Israel three times. And he ended up blessing them. And finally, the la- you know, the, he actually did that twice. He offered the sacrifices. He told the Lord was going to bless the people. And he just launched out in what he wanted to be a curse. And God turned the curse into a blessing. Is the way the text seems in Numbers 24, verses 9 and 10. Now, do you remember what happened right after it? Paul, you're shaking your head. What happens after this? He convinced the king, he's like, look, I'm not going to be able to curse them, but here's how you can curse them. Take your daughters into their midst and and let them... Okay. Right after this, in Numbers 25, Numbers 25, uh, the Bible tells us that uh, Balaam... We don't see Balaam's behind this until Numbers 31, 16. Okay. But in Numbers 25, remember the Israelite men are committing adultery with the Moabite and Midianite women. Numbers 31 verse 16 says that was at the council of Balaam. That's why in Revelation 2, when the Bible talks about those who would encourage you to commit fornication following the doctrine of Balaam, Revelation 2, 14 and 15. That's why Balaam is used as an illustration of that. Because of what Balaam did to Israel in Numbers uh, chapter 25. Now, this is the thing. Balaam could not get God to curse Israel. But Balaam gets Israel to curse God. And in a lot of ways, that is just a brief synopsis of the whole biblical story. Um, In verse 11, you cross the Jordan. Oh, let, let let me mention this. Let me mention this. Before we go to verse 11, look at Judges 11, verse 25. Judges 11, verse 25. When Jephthah is giving his speech to the king of... um, to the king of... uh, excuse me now... to the king of Ammonites... 
when he's giving his speech, he says in verse 25, Are you better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel or did he ever fight against them? Then ask that question expecting a no answer. Did he strive with them? Did he fight with them? Joshua 24, 9 says he did fight with them. Okay, now what's going on in context? Um, a couple of things. I, I think first of all, Jephthah's point is, after we got this land, the king never fought with us to try to take it away from us. I think that's the point that he's making there. Uh, if, if this was not land that belonged to us, why didn't Balak try to take it away? I think that they are using the word fault in a different way. By hiring Balaam to curse them, that is fighting against them in, in 24, Joshua 24. I mean, just look at the context. How does it say he fought against Israel? He didn't summon an army as far as the text goes or this goes. What he does is he summons someone to curse him, curse them, believing whomever he blesses is blessed and whomever he curses is cursed. That's what he does. Now, so I don't think there's any contradiction there. Does anybody have a difficulty with that or problem with that? If you don't answer it soon, we can try to get to it when we cover judges. Um, so you can be, um, I'll be thinking of uh, preparing for your uh, crafty response to that. So, But in verse 11 of Joshua 24, You crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you. And the Amorite and the Canaanite, Ammonite, Amorite, and the Perizzite, Canaanite. These are all the nations mentioned in Joshua 3.10. Thus I gave them into your hand. The citizens of Jericho fought against you. So here he talks about Jericho and the conquering of the city. What went wrong in the taking of the city of Jericho? Achan went wrong. In Joshua 7 verse 1, God was angry with Israel because of what Achan did in taking something that was under the ban. So in all of these points, again, we are seeing God's faithfulness stressed against Israel's unfaithfulness. Then in verse 12, then I sent the hornet before you and drove it out, drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built and you have lived in them uh, and you are eating of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Now, what does it mean that God sent the hornet ahead of them. Look in Exodus 23. You know, hornets could be literal. Uh, some think hornets are a reference to foreign kings who, who invaded and weakened them before Israel got there. But I think Exodus 23 may be a little bit better description. Exodus 23, verses 27 and 28. I will send my terror ahead of you. And throw into confusion all the peoples among whom you come. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you. 
that they may drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. I'm going to send hornets ahead of you to drive them out before you. Well, sending the hornets in verse 28 seems to be parallel to, in verse 27, sending God's terror ahead of them, throwing all their enemies into confusion and making their enemies to turn their back. I think by the context, you can see that sending hornets among them is a figurative description of of the panic and chaos that ensued. I can remember when I was eight years old, there was a group of guys together. We were an athletic team and... Uh, we were sitting in this field and all of a sudden the coach realized, one of the coaches realized that's a hornet's nest. And everybody started running and screaming every direction. I don't know if if uh, you know this, but hornets are resistant to sound. So if you scream, they'll stay away from you. <laughs> or at least so we thought. You know? And uh, so... Uh, but we were running, we were screaming. I did not get bitten, but there were some people on the team got bitten multiple times. And I saw in that an illustration of the chaos and confusion when there is a hornet's nest like this. And I think that's a picture of the confusion and chaos that God was going to send among the armies, among the armies of the Canaanites who opposed Israel. I'm going to send the hornet before you. And it's going to drive out your kings. But I want you to notice that last statement in verse 12. Not by your sword or your bow. Does that mean they didn't wield a sword or wield a bow? Mm-mm. No. But that is saying that the ground of their victory was not that. But their ground, the ground of their victory was in the power of God who threw their army, threw the armies of their enemies into confusion and disorientation. Psalm 44 verse 3 says, For by their own sword they did not possess the land. And by their own, their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, you favored them. Psalm 44 verse 3. Not by your sword, not by your bow, not by your strength did you do it. And God says, I gave you houses that you didn't plant and vineyards that you didn't plant. And all these good things that you are enjoying. Now, we could also say, and this is not so much an evidence of um, sin, but in verses 12 and 13, when they conquered Canaan, this is emphasizing God gave them the land. God was good to them. He gave them the land He promised. But the text also, and we also know that that brought with it temptation. This is not an outright statement of sin. This is just a statement that they had houses that they didn't build and vineyards that they didn't plant 
And be aware, lest you forget the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 through uh, 12. And the same kind of thing in Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 through 18. Same kind of warning where they're told not to trust in silver. Or or, or they're told in that passage, um, beware lest you forget that the Lord your God is the one who gives you the power to get well. Now, it's powerful in and of itself just to see what God has done. It's even more powerful when we take into account all that Scripture has said at this point to show us that God accomplished this in spite of the people. What thoughts or questions do you all have on the first 13 verses? Anything, Bob? You look like you had a thought. I've always heard a discussion that oftentimes about the horn. Is there something in the Hebrew? By, by the way, horns stand in all by. They do? Okay. Yeah. Well, you probably studied hornets in school more than I did. Has anybody been a bug man in the congregation? If we have a bug man, they would be the definitive answer. But go ahead, Bob. Well, I have had encounters with him in this thing. So, if anything would make me run in panic, it would be that right there. Yes. yes. <clears throat> but you were saying something about the Hebrew. I didn't. I, didn't. I was going to ask. Often, oftentimes, it is talk. I've, I've heard it talked about. Maybe these weren't hornets. Maybe you know, maybe literal. You know, when yeah. God can conjure up any kind of insect he wants to. Yeah. And do what he will with it. Yes. At the same time, uh, uh, I understood your your uh, explanation also that the chaos that was among them, even Baal himself. Look, these people have come and they settled beside me. They were they were starting their chaos right right then. You know? Yes. <clears throat> That's the, right. Just the the appearance of Israel in your presence would strike uh, fear of them. And uh, especially uh, if they have. Look at all that's happened to Egypt. But your proof of your statement that God could have used these insects to do what he wanted. I mean, look at the plagues. You know, some of those dealt with insects. You know, the, um, you have the, whatever the third plague is. In the King James, it's lice, uh, it's gnats, mosquitoes, and various translations. The fourth plague, which is variously translated, but swarms of insects is the most common belief. So yes, God could use these. Exactly. God could use these. And, and it's not a denial that that is, that is possible. Um, I am just stating because of the context that it seems like he's using these animals or these, these insects as, as pictures of the of the um, the chaos that they cause. Another passage that mentions the hornet in this same way is also in the context of God uh, giving them the land of Canaan. It's in Deuteronomy 7, verse 20. In the context, Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. You shall not dread them, for the Lord your God is your God. And um, and he says in verse 
23 of that chapter, Deuteronomy 7, 23, the Lord will throw them into great, into great confusion till they are destroyed. But yes, God, and if, if God did use insects to cause that te- terror and panic, you know, I don't have any problem with that. It's certainly consistent with uh, all of Scripture. But what else, but, but David? Uh, the things that happened in Egypt had been like 40 years ago. But clearly the people in the land of Canaan had heard about that. Yes. And uh, and I'm not trying to minimize the plagues or the Red Sea or anything, but over time, legends seem to grow. <laughs> and these actions... Yeah, as these people get closer, it's like, oh yeah, we heard about this, and and it could make it even worse. And then they mm-hmm. defeat Sion and Og easily, mm-hmm. and that just adds to it. Adds to the panic. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Isn't it interesting though when you say that something hit me? The enemies are terrified because God sent the plagues and God dried up the Red Sea, but Israel often has trouble believing, in spite of the fact they saw the plagues and is in God dry up the sea. In fairness, this generation does better with their faith than the previous generation had done. But you still see the same kind of thing. I always thought Balak was probably a more wise man. He, he, he came to the conclusion that he could not defeat this horde, uh, yeah, yeah, by the living that's that's led by the living God. Yeah. So he he goes he goes to that same God to defeat them. You know, yes. He, yes, he does. An act of desperation, obviously, uh, not a child of God himself, not a, not a, a Hebrew for sure, and uh, with no relationship with him but he saw that his only chance would be through him I just thought that was always kind of neat about Balak yeah, that, well that is interesting he does not try to fight uh, against him in that way and you know one of the most amazing things to me you know, archaeology has confirmed the existence of a lot of people who are mentioned in biblical texts but one of them is a Balaam son of Beor who is mentioned as a prophet whose words came to pass. I just, you know, that's a non-Israelite, you know, it's not going to be probably made up by some Israelite. It's like we can make up an artifact and bury it in the ground and everybody judges it to be from, I think that comes from about 600 B.C. But I mean, it's, I, find that, I find it fascinating. Balaam is just a fascinating study from so many respects in addition to what Bob said there about we just don't, you know, we don't, uh, he has at least, Balak has at least maybe enough sense not to fight them. So, but see, what? how should we use history? I, I've always been fascinated by history, not as much as some, I, I grant, and there's some parts of history I've been slow to catch on to. But history has a purpose. History has a purpose. The old saying that those who don't know the story, the story of history are doomed to repeat it. Um, history has a story and history has a theological point. 
History tells us to be faithful to this God who has been so faithful to us. History is a call to surrender to this God who has blessed us so abundantly. And Joshua makes this call very dramatically in 24 verses 15 and, and six, or 24 verses 14 and 15. Now therefore serve, serve him, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose, your for, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served who are beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, let's look at this. Look at this. He, he calls on people here to serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Fear the Lord. Now he gives three alternatives here. He said you can serve in verse 14 and 15. He mentions as one alternative, serve the gods beyond the river. The gods from Mesopotamia. Serve them. The gods Abraham and Nahor served before they followed me. You can serve these gods. You can serve the gods of Egypt. Or you can serve the gods of the Amorites into whose land you're about to go, as they will often do in worshiping Baal and worshiping these other gods. The one I wanted to call your call more attention to than this, because this is one of the few passages of the Bible that says this. This is the this is the only passage I know of in the historical books that says this. When e, when Israel was in Egypt, they served other gods. That is stated in a prophetic book. I, I, look at Ezekiel 20. Ezekiel 20. Ezekiel 20 is a fascinating story of Israel's history. It fits just like these before. A story of God's goodness against the background of Israel's sin. But in Ezekiel 20, in verses 7 and 8, listen to this. I said to them, I said to them, Cast away each of you the detestable idols of his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me, but they, cast, they did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes. Nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Now, if you read what's above it, you're going to see that this is plainly what the Lord says about the people in Egypt. When they were in Egypt, they are worshiping other gods and God contemplated destroying them. This is also referred to several times in Ezekiel 23. In Ezekiel 23, verse 3, 
The Bible says that they played the harlot in Egypt. They played the harlot in their youth. In their youth. Their breasts were pressed and their virgin bosom was handled. They played the harlot in Egypt. That's said in Ezekiel 23, verse 3. Ezekiel 23, verse 8. Uh, it is said in a couple of more passages in Ezekiel um, 23, verse 19 and 21. All of them specifically identified Egypt as a place where they were unfaithful. Even in Egypt, before God rescued them. They were worshiping other gods. Their whole history was a history of rebellion. The fact that Abraham and his father were idolaters before reminds us of the statement in Ezekiel 16 verses 2 and 3, Your origins or birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. That's Ezekiel 16 verse 3. Again the point I'm trying to stress, God's goodness has always been an act of God's grace. I never really heard the idea the idea preached except to refute it. Even 50 years ago. But who could say there is no mercy or grace in the Old Testament? It is on every single page when you know the story. Thank you.